Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. A young lady, I don't think I've treated you two before, and a colleague of mine, an analyst with the Center for Risk Analysis, Makone Maja, welcome to the IRL show. Thank you very much for having me, Sarah. I'm very happy to be making my debut with you here this afternoon. Excellent. Well, let's, uh, other than the fact that, you know, this, this is the, the morning, but we're in, uh, suffering from such heat, who would know? Um, <laughs> just a little back, can you give us a little background about yourself so we, we know who we're dealing with? Sure. So, uh, as you already touched on, my name is Magwani Maja. I am an analyst at the Center for Risk Analysis. A lot of my work at the CRA focuses on infrastructure, business relations in the country, uh, as well as politics and a little bit of industrial relations. So just looking at trade unions and tracking their growth or um, lack of growth thereof in those areas. And yeah, that's basically what I've been doing over at my time in the CRA. Right. In that case, you should have a job for life. Um, (laughs) What we're going to talk about this morning is what may appear to be something of an arcane subject. We're going to talk about preferential procurement in the public sector. Now, Mm. I'm going to ask you first to tell us what preferential procurement is. Yeah, so preferential procurement is where... Procurement, which is essentially how government leases um, or invites businesses to come in and do business with the state in providing various goods or services. Now, not so unique to South Africa because you've seen attempts at this variation of affirmative action by other countries as well. So not so unique to South Africa. Our procurement has introduced external factors in how the government determines which businesses it will do business with and which businesses it will do business, it will not do business businesses with it will not do business with rather um and that's what we refer to when we speak about prefer- preferential procurement now the goal of the government in introducing those external factors is to level out the disparities that persist today as a result of historical disadvantages from apartheid so you see groups including black people women small businesses people with disabilities being given certain advantages on account of those immutable characteristics um, when government decides who it will trade with and that is essentially what we refer to that is the preferential in preferential procurement is that those groups will be given special preferences or special treatment or special marks that ultimately determine um, who the government will allow to provide with goods and services. CRA and the IR have have lobbied against this for years because we see it as fundamentally detrimental. What are the problems that preferential procurement throws up? That are not a great benefit to the society as a whole. Yeah, I think speaking for the IRR, I imagine just on principle alone, something like BEE, where basically gives special advantages to black people because of apartheid, just on principle alone, that racializes procurement. So I imagine for the IRR, that would, again, on principle, not necessarily that the IRR is anti-growth or anti-transformation or anti-development or empowerment of black people, just on the principle of racialization of trade, the IRR would oppose something like um, preferential procurement, which ultimately takes shape in the form of BEE or 
or even um, employment equity. Uh, mm-hmm. But for the CRA, I think we would take a more analytical approach, a more business oriented approach, just looking at whether or not people are actually getting value for the services that are provided to them by these companies that are trading with the with the government through preferential procurement or through those preferences made to them. And what we're seeing and what we came out of the Zonda report after many, many months of investigation, after in-depth and extensive analysis by the Zonda Commission team, um, is that people are simply not getting value for their money. That means that people are paying far more for goods and services that are rent- by the government than they arguably would if preferential procurement was not taking place, if people were not awarded government contracts because of their race or their gender or a previous discrimination that in or arguably or inarguably persists, continues today. And so for the CRA, we would take a more analytical approach to say it just does not work, but also that it invites corruption. And we've seen this all time and time again. We've seen it at ESCOM. We've seen it at Transnet. We've seen it at almost all state-owned entities that have been crippled today that are in a decrypted state is that BEE has been a conduit for corruption in how people have been able to take advantage of some of the ways in which BEE invites people to work with, right? So things like the right partner. Those are all almost off, almost always, if not often, people with very warm and cozy relationships with with politicians, with the right politicians, and yeah, so that 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 gateway to corruption is something that we've seen persistently. But falling back on the Zonda Commission, but also on a new report that just came out of Harvard's Growth Lab, um, Harvard University's Growth Lab, is people are just simply not getting value for money, and that BEE, if anything, instead of achieving economic inclusion as it was originally intended, has actually exacerbated economic exclusion of the apartheid era and that by many measurements, things have not only not improved for the people for whom it targets, right, black people, but that things have gotten worse for them. Things have not just gotten worse for black people, but people who live away or outside of the city. So um, that in apartheid terms would be the former homelands. So seeing policy that had good intentions and aimed at achieving, among other things, economic inclusion, economic empowerment, economic freedom, seeing those po- those policies do the exact opposite would be the motivation, I believe, for both the CRA and the IRR to oppose it. Because as you know, the IRR and the CRA are pro-growth, pro pro-inclusion, pro-entrepreneurship, pro-freedom of markets, pro-freedom ultimately. And you can imagine all the ways in which preferential procurement stands in the way of that. I mean, it's quite something. I mean, you know, one to have Zonda commenting as such and the other, I mean, I know the, as far as I know, the Democratic Alliance is the one, the one party that's really come out against this. But to have Harvard issue a substantial report on it is, uh, is, is, must, is extremely significant. And it's under the aegis of Professor Ricardo Hausman, who is globally well known. What mm. generally do they say that or does the report say that really adds to our criticism of, of the system? Yeah. So one thing I've been really struck by with the report from Harvard, it's about 178 pages. It was conducted over um, several, I think a year or two. So it, it wasn't haphazard. These people really took their time. Obviously, um, Harvard speaks that uh, this professor you speak of as well, speaks authoritatively on economic issues in the global south and emerging markets. But one thing that really struck me is their choice of words and what one of my colleagues at the at the CRA and the IR Tyler 
always speaks about is taking back and claiming back words like transformation, words like inclusion, mm. words mm. like economic freedom, right, which have been hijacked by certain <laughs> ideological, <laughs> ideological <laughs> political <laughs> wings. Mm, exactly. So seeing the report make use of words like inclusion, typically that would set alarm bells for like a classically liberty person like myself. But just observing how they've been able to use those words to show how we all essentially want inclusion of people that are disadvantaged, people that are previously disadvantaged, people that are poor, and that that has not only not been achieved, but that even the policies on the cards by the governments will not achieve that. And if anything, that they they will undermine economic growth and that they've undermined growth drivers. So they make two over, they categorize um, the problem South Africa is making in two overarching branches. One is that there's spatial inclusion that emanates from the apartheid era, that policies, including housing policies, believe it or not, Sarah, which I hadn't previously considered, but mm-hmm. housing policies that have not only exas- not only not improved spatial exclusion and um, apartheid spatial planning, but have worsened it, which is that people who live in the former homelands have not been incorporated or included or ushered in, given a stepping stone into participating in key economic hubs. So just Mm. touching um, specifically on that housing issue as a problem, they make the case that if people are, if housing is provided away from economic hubs or away from drivers of economic growth, how then do you expect people to actually obtain jobs, to practice entrepreneurship when they are not in close proximity to those things? And you know, when you speak about like bringing people into the cities to come and work, people often think of formal employment, but the report specifically pays attention to informal employment. And they point out that even informal employment levels in South Africa are particularly low and that Mm. that cannot be explained away by things like the big social grant endowment problems we have in South Africa or strange labor market regulations or low levels of, of education and high levels mm-hmm. of crime, that those those factors I've just listed do not explain why South Africa has low informal um, mm. unemployment numbers, right? But that the spatial exclusion and spatial persistent spatial planning that South Africa has enforced post-94 is the reason why you're not able to see integration into the economy of um, people who live in poorer areas in South Africa. So that's the first problem they categorize is spatial exclusion. The second one is collapse in state entity. And it's been in the news. Sure. It's been in the news Mm -hmm. cycle for years now. Uh, We're seeing it uh, being stressed uh, in what's happening at our ports through Transnet Port Terminals and Transnet Port National Authority. We've been ranting and raving about it as far as ESCOM and low chain is concerned. (laughs) (laughs) It's <laughs> that there's a significant diminishing and almost collapse of state capacity. And they, those are their words, not mine. I'm not trying to be alarmist here or incendiary, but they use the word collapse in state uh, capacity. They, they stay away from the failed state um, term because that can be a bit controversial and requires, I, I think, a lot more um, stringent application of the, the factors that determined a failed state. But the fact that ESCOM is not working, that trains are not working, that also has exacerbated economic exclusion of people who live in poorer areas, people who live in um, less urbanized areas. So those would be their two overarching problems that the report by Harvard identifies. 
I think what what it highlights is the simple maxim. You know, I say to people with respect to, for example, voting. I mean, voting is a political act and it's a single act. It, it, it's mm-hmm. not as if you have to devote your life to to politics. But you may not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. In other words, everything the government does or does not do has a knock-on effect on absolutely everything else. And the part of the reason we're in the extraordinary malaise we're in is because policy, including preferential procurement, but policy across the board sort of lumped mm. together ends up creating an environment that there's no growth. And if you have no growth, everything, everything sort of becomes, it becomes stasis. And no one goes right. anywhere, no one develops, the country doesn't develop. I mean, it's logical, I would say, that what this means is you sit down and you say, hang on, this policy stuff is no good. We've actually got to change these policies. But mm-hmm. no sooner do I think it, then we see that the Treasury is essentially doubling down preferential procurement. And it currently is in, you know, meetings in Parliament to do this. What are they doing? I mean, in the circumstances, what are they, how can they possibly be making things worse? So that's exactly what the Harvard professors say as well, that road to recovery, it's incumbent that road to recovery in terms of getting our numbers back to pre, at least their pre-COVID state, let alone growing outside of those um, state or capacitating the state has to be number one on the table. And they argue that you know, fiscal policies and other government policies that are geared towards growth will not make any significant dent in the trajectory South Africa is on today. And you've just touched on new procurement laws that are on the cards, despite numerous reports, numerous commentary. I mean, it's a broken record now, but just showing that procurement, preferential procurement does not work. People need um, to get value for their money instead of paying. I think some reports have shown that people pay about 20% more for government uh, services than they would in a free market, right? Mm-hmm. You see, like you said, Treasury doubling down. Um, on those preferential procurement laws. So even the Zonda report is not even taken into consideration mm-hmm. because it's the one that makes those, um, those arguments about value for money. But yes. it seems we, we, we put on a large, a large display of uh, criminal justice and this and that through the Zonda commission with ultimately no intentions of actually following up or doing or making use of any of those reports or all, all 600 pages of the Zonda report. You know, what it goes to show is you can spend hundreds of millions of rands on a, on a commission into state capture, have these recommendations made, and if you, mm. the government chooses to ignore them, they essentially can. So, of course, the question then has to be asked is why and why now? Why are they doing this? I think, and this is, this is also in the report by Harvard, but it's the commitment to certain ideology that despite evidence to the contrary that what you, what the government's planned and what they've executed over the past years is simply, simply not enough to place the country where it needs to be competitively against its, um, other emerging market counterparts, despite all the evidence showing that South Africa is not moving in the right direction. I mean, this is also shown in our polls. We don't only have to cite authoritative sources on this, but South Africans in general are showing a lot of despair in how things are going at present um, and even how things will be five years from now, which is another question we asked them about in our polls, um, that despite all the evidence 
the government is just simply committed to an ideology that they will not give up. I'm going to, I'm, this is a yes and or no question. The motivation really be that if they, if you in any way loosen the bonds of procurement, uh, preferential procurement, those who benefit from state capture will not be able to benefit anymore. And, and you, you only have to look at the corruption that has occurred at a place like Tembisa Hospital mm. um, to know the huge terrible downside of this. So am I right in saying that that's probably a factor as well, if unstated? I mean, I I would speculate on this, but when you listen to how emboldened certain political figures are or certain former CEOs of various state-owned entities that were essentially cross-examined, cross-questioned during the state, during the state capture commission. When you just listen to their rhetoric and how the fact that they, <laughs> and even Zondra himself acknowledges this, that he was just surprised at how uncanny some of these people were in his interactions to, with him. Little did he know that they knew something that he didn't at the time, which is that the state capture report would simply be collecting dust and nobody would be acting on it. So, so just reading Zondo and his sobering thoughts months and years after the commission and the report itself, after the commitments from the president to actually do something about the report other than use it as a coaster. Um, oh, it's, <laughs> it seems these people did indeed know something that we didn't know going into something like the commission. It is an extraordinary situation, but I feel that the more we know about it, the more we can anticipate the problems and try and fight against it. Otherwise, I, I would use the Zona Commission report as a as a doorstopper. Makonya um, <laughs> Maja, thank you very much for that analysis, given the brief time that we have. And uh, we are nowhere near the end of this fight, but uh, who knows? Maybe I should I should be more... Hopeful. Um, no, I'll definitely be more hopeful. <laughs> and thank you. And I hope to get you on again on another series of governmental policy intrigues. Thank you very much for having me, Sarah. I'd be happy to come back if you'll have me. Thank you.